Some of you might remember uh, some years back during a Resurrection Sunday message entitled Breakfast with the Resurrected Lord, I told you of my dismay when I watched the um, Charlie Brown Easter special. It's the Easter Beagle Charlie Brown. Now, after becoming a Christian, I came to appreciate that scene in the Christmas special with such a fervor that I never had prior to knowing Christ. If some of you are familiar with the Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, I've told you before, that in the midst of disarray and despondency, when Charlie Brown asks the question, isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? There's an individual who steps up to the plate. There's an individual who's ready in season and out of season. He has an answer to the question. He doesn't need a pocket New Testament. He doesn't need a Bible app. He has the Word of God committed to memory. Linus Van Pelt steps up and he quotes Luke chapter 2, verses 8 to 14, right off of the top of his head. It's an amazing part in that, um, in that Christmas special. He stepped up. He proclaimed good news of great joy. As you recall the angel's words, interestingly, I recently found this out. As he said, fear not, it's as though he kind of acted out the heeding of that instruction, dropping his blue security blanket. For obvious reasons, it's one of my favorite parts of any animated cartoon. Well, having appreciated that as a Christian, I was like, you know what, let me just see what he might have said during the Easter special. You know, you might have anticipated in light of that that maybe he's going to give some recitation from Matthew 28 or Mark 16 or Luke 24 or John 20 or 1 Corinthians 15. But no. The young boy who appeared as a young evangelist appeared as though he had been drugged with Easter Beagle serum in It's the Easter Beagle, Charlie Brown. It's a strange thing if you behold it. He's just talking about the Easter Beagle the whole time. Lucy says something along the lines of doing shopping for things like baskets, eggs, and candy, and Linus politely told her, I told you it's a waste of time. The Easter Beagle does all that. He told Sally, Charlie Brown's sister, on Easter Sunday, the Easter Beagle passes colored eggs to all the good little kids. He also said, the Easter Beagle will never let you down. To put it very mildly, Linus lost his focus. <laughs> He provided the reason for the season during uh, Christmas time, remembering the incarnation. But during Easter, instead of proclaiming the resurrection, he had his hopes fixed upon an egg-delivering beagle. Now, the interesting thing about that is, if you watch the episode, you see that the Easter beagle actually comes through. Who's the Easter beagle? It's Snoopy. That's who the Easter beagle was. He could have just said, Snoopy's going to bring colored eggs and so on. He had his hope fixed in the wrong place, but it actually worked out. And that reminds me of what we see in Isaiah chapter 7. Within the context of maybe the most familiar verse associated with Christmas, that a virgin would conceive and bear a son, there was this king of Judah, a wicked king, and he put his hope in the wrong place, and it actually worked out until it all unraveled. The king of Judah had an opportunity in the passage before us, despite, as you will see, his horrid and checkered history, to put his hopes in the promises of God, but he chose what he likely esteemed to be political realism, realpolitik. And he placed his hope in the king of Assyria. And it worked out for a season until his ill-chosen savior became the ravager of Judah. It's in the midst of this opportunity that he was presented with. 
and the wrong choice that he made, the Lord promised to give the sign of Emmanuel. You might know Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, but I think you will appreciate Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 when you know verses 1 through 13. And if you can appreciate the buildup and the context that leads into this promise, I think it will help you to esteem this promise even more. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to work our way up to the promise of the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. And we begin in Isaiah chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, where we read, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. So in verse 1, we do not see a Christmas tree, but we see a little bit of Ahaz's family tree. Ahaz had a godly grandfather, Uzziah. Uzziah was a godly king who didn't have the best of endings. You could see that in 2 Chronicles 26. Ahaz had a godly father, Jotham. You could learn more about him in 2 Chronicles 27. He was a good king that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, 2 Chronicles 27, verse 2. He became mighty because he prepared his ways before Yahweh his God, verse 6 of that same chapter. In other words, he directed his decisions and his actions in accordance with God's revealed will. But Ahaz was an apple that fell pretty far from that family tree. He wasn't like Uzziah and he wasn't like Jotham. He was a wicked king. He was a king that practiced idolatry. He was a king that practiced child sacrifice. If you want a little bit of his horrid resume, you go to 2 Chronicles 28 verses 1 through 4 and you can see it right there. And you know that when a nation has that kind of leader, big problems are often a part of that package. And the nation of Judah had big problems. We're told in our text that an alliance of two kingdoms, Syria or Aram, and Israel. Remember, the kingdom is split at this time, right? It's not a united kingdom like it was under David. It's not a united kingdom as it was under much of Solomon's reign. The kingdom split. Israel here represents the ten northern tribes of Israel. In this passage, you'll see them referred to as Ephraim. So you got this association, this confederation of Israel and Syria, and they are planning to go against Jerusalem. But the text here says, perhaps a little retrospectively, that they would not, that they did not prevail against it. Let me give you a little bit more of the context. They got to Jerusalem, so that was bad news for the people of Judah. They couldn't overtake Jerusalem, but they got all the way to Jerusalem. And what happened along the way, just to give you a little bit of a rundown, you would see all this in 2 Chronicles 28. Judah had suffered major losses. They were delivered into the hands of Syria, who defeated them and took a great number of captives. 2 Chronicles 28, verse 5. Judah also suffered a staggering defeat at the hands of Israel. 120 men were slain on the field of battle because they had forsaken Yahweh their God. You see that in 2 Chronicles 28, verse 6. And not only that, 200,000 people were taken captive. 
women and children and so on taken captive. You read on in 2 Chronicles 28, via the prophecy of a prophet, those captives were sent back. But they had suffered major losses. You go through the chapter, you see they also had to deal with Edomites from the southeast, and they had to deal with Philistines from the west, verses 17 and 18. I say all that to say, you could imagine Ahaz's dismay when he gets word that Syria is deployed in Ephraim. Like, like what, what does that mean? That means that Syria had set there in Ephraim, their confederation was together, they were in the same place, and they were getting ready to mount an assault on Jerusalem. So no wonder why the scripture tells us that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. They were panicked. They have good reason in one sense to be panicked. Look at all of the losses they suffered. Look at all the damage that was done. It's as though their time was short and they knew it. Now I do want to make a couple of observations here that I do think are helpful. First, when you look at verses 1 and 2, I just want to remind you that being moved to fear is not the same as being moved to prayer. They're not one and the same. The hope is that the former would lead to the latter. That if you are moved to fear at a given point, you will, by the grace of God, be moved to prayer. And that God would be sought out as the help and the hero and the rescuer that he is. Regardless of what he does or doesn't do, he ought to be sought out as that. The object of trust, the object of hope, and so on. Ahaz was likely in a meeting of some kind, perhaps he was. And when that word came about this confederation coming against him, whatever meeting it was, wasn't, nor did it become a prayer meeting. So I just want to remind you, even as I remind myself, to learn from Ahaz's sinful independence. And don't try to handle adverse circumstances on your own. Practice Christ-like dependence on your Heavenly Father. Look to him and seek him for wisdom. I also want to call your attention to the fact that this fear didn't lead to repentance. They're afraid, but they're not turning to God and saying, what have we done? We have sinned against the living God. They had a fear of circumstances. And I think a lot of people in our world right now, look at what's going on in the world. Look at what's going on domestically. Look at what's going on internationally. And they are moved to some sort of fear, like what's going on in our land. But be reminded, being moved to fear is not the same as being moved to repentance. Ahaz ought to have been moved to repentance, and he ought to have led the nation in repentance, but he didn't do that. Third, I want to call your attention to something that the Lord was doing here. The Lord was using wicked nations and wicked kings to punish a wicked nation and a wicked king. Each of those nations exercised their fallen wills freely, and God superintended their choices sovereignly. God himself unpacks this very clearly in Isaiah chapter 10. Assyria would be the rod that he would use to strike Judah, even as he had used them to strike Israel. This isn't the only time you see a thing like this in the scriptures. Now with that being said, with all that being said to you, what comes next in verse 3 ought to take you by surprise. Consider verse 3 through verse 9 a kind of Christmas surprise for you. You don't expect this. If you're just reading, you don't expect this to happen. This is the first of the surprises right here. Verse 3 reads, Then the Lord, or Yahweh, said to Isaiah, Go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool, 
on the highway to the fuller's field. So Isaiah, that prophet who was commissioned by Yahweh in the previous chapter, in Isaiah chapter 6, he's told to go and meet Ahaz. And the message isn't, kiss your life and your kingdom goodbye. That's not the message. Wait till you see the message. This is intersecting grace right here. So he goes to meet Ahaz. Ahaz, who was apparently supervising the aqueduct, um, likely so that he could redirect the water supply, so that enemy forces couldn't have access to it. Likely also making sure that in case of a siege, the nation, the Jerusalem, would have access to water. You see Hezekiah do something like this in 2 Chronicles 32. So this was a good thing to do. But the problem was, it's as though Ahaz was doing every other thing except the primary thing. He is not seeking the Lord. He's doing, if you will, every other thing. He's looking for help in every other place but the primary place. Now I do want to say, sadly... These Ahaz-like tendencies can show up in us. You know it. I know it. We can be faced with adversity, and what do we do? We make phone calls. We do internet searches. We schedule appointments. We have conversations. Before, at least sometimes, we draw our attention to the fountain of living water and his holy word. I think the convictions of Andrew Bonner... Uh, the 19th century, 19th century minister in the Free Church of Scotland can be helpful in this regard. He had three rules concerning prayer, and I think if we were to adopt these, at least to some degree, it would help us avoid Ahaz-like tendencies. His three rules concerning prayer were, one, not to speak to any man before speaking to Jesus. Two, not to do anything with his hands until he had been on his knees. Three, not to read the papers until he had read his Bible. You want to update that? Not to check his email or social media account until he had read his Bible. I think if we adopt those practices, we'll be a lot less likely to fall into Ahaz-like tendencies. We'll be a lot less likely to go looking in a whole bunch of other places before we cast our cares upon the one who cares for us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Now this is what I want you to be amazed by. Ahaz wasn't doing any of these things. He wasn't talking to Yahweh, he wasn't on his knees in prayer, and he wasn't reading the copy of God's law that he as a king should have written with his own hands. And yet, what does Yahweh do? Behold the condescending kindness and mercy of your God. He sends the prophet Isaiah out to meet him. The God who stretched forth his hands all day long to a disobedient and gainsaying people was stretching forth his hands to a disobedient and gainsaying king. Behold the mercy of your God. He goes proactively to bring a message to a king who's not seeking him. There is mercy in the interception. There's mercy in the forthcoming message. But just quickly, just so you know, there's also an object lesson in Isaiah's son. Isaiah's son was named Shear Jashub which meant a remnant shall return. It's as though God was giving the big picture with this object lesson, that there was going to be massive deportation. But the good news of that was that a remnant would return. There would be an assured ongoing existence of the people of Judah. They would have a presence in that land of Judea. And then comes message in verse 4, and say to him, take heed, or be careful, and be quiet, 
Be calm. Do not fear or be faint-hearted for these two stubs of smoking firebrands for the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. You break down those uh, words there in verse 4 and God was essentially telling Ahaz to listen up. He's telling him to calm down. I like how our rendering says, be quiet. You could imagine Ahaz just talking about the problem. What are we going to do? We've got to do something. We've got to do something. We've got to do something. And God tells him, calm down. Be careful. Don't fear or be faint-hearted. Literally, do not fear or be faint-hearted. That, the latter part of that would have the connotation of do not let your heart be soft. In other words, don't let your heart melt like wax, to use language from John Gill. God was essentially telling Ahaz to calm down and trust him. And maybe that's a message that some of you need to hear in this moment. God saying, trust me. Calm down and trust me. As we'll come to be reminded of in our passage, that's not only for our comfort, it's also for our good. When you are panicked and when you are anxiety-ridden, you don't exactly make the best decisions. And God was telling Ahaz here to calm down. And if you don't do that, and if you don't trust God, Ahaz is an example of it can lead to bad places. More about that a little bit later. Notice also, look at verse 4, so you can understand the language here. Uh, God called the kings of Syria and Israel two stubs of smoking firebrands. Now, that's not exactly an intimidating picture. The idea was they were stubs that were smoking. It's as though they were matches that were burning before. They were these flames that were moving through the land, as it were. But now at this point, it's as though they were just smoking, burnt out matches. They're depicted as weak and vanishing, to use language from one commentator. It's as though they could smoke, but their days of burning were behind them. Notice also that the king of Israel, Pekah, is called here the son of Ramalia. It's as though it's a term of contempt connoting that he was a man of no real distinction, whose name wasn't even fit to be spoken. Now comes the further surprise. Not only that God sent Isaiah to Ahaz, but this is the message that he gives him. Verses 5 through 9. Because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have plotted against you. So note that. Even though they're smoking firebrands, that didn't stop them from plotting They're still plotting. They've got a plan. And what's their plan? Look at verse 6. Let us go up against Judah and trouble it. Frighten it might be the rendering of the language there. And let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves. In other words, let's break through. Let's tear down the wall. Let's make a hole in the wall. Let's get into the city. And this was their plan. And set a king over them, the son of Tabel. See, the issue for Israel and Syria was they saw Assyria as being a big problem. Like, Assyria is on the horizon, they're a big problem, and we need a confederation to get ready to go against Assyria. Judah didn't want to join. So their plan was, okay, we'll go and overtake Judah, we'll overtake Jerusalem, we'll set a puppet king in Jerusalem who will do our bidding, and then we have a confederation with which we could withstand Assyria. That's the plan. That's the plotting. The Lord goes on to say in verse 7 through Isaiah, Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. In other words, they'll come against Jerusalem, but it's not going to work out. 
It reminds me of Proverbs 19.21, which says, There are many plans in a man's heart. Nevertheless, the Lord's counsel, that will stand. What does that tell you about the Lord your God? He's sovereign. What does that tell you about the Lord your God? He's omniscient. He knows the future. He makes the end known from the beginning. What does that tell you about your God? He's unstoppable. What he says will stand. He goes on and he says, For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. Now the idea there might be something like this. If you were to look at Syria, you'd say, okay, the head of Syria is Damascus. In other words, the capital of Syria is Damascus. But if you were to peel the curtain back even further, you'd see that the head of Damascus is resin. It's just a human king. So if you peel back the curtain, that's what you're dealing with. One other implication might be this. The Lord was saying, what they are, they will be. Judah will not be amalgamated into Syria. This is the way it is. You may have both of those implications going on. They're not mutually exclusive. If you look at the second half of verse 8, the Lord says, Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. So not long from there, the Assyrians would conquer the northern kingdom in 722 B.C., about 12 or 13 years later. And then around 671 B.C. or 670 B.C., the Assyrian king would import even more foreign settlers into what was previously the northern kingdom, finishing the work that a previous Assyrian king would begin. In other words, the northern kingdom, Ephraim, they're not going to be a people anymore. They're going to be so overrun with Assyrians or people that are being put there by the Assyrian king that Ephraim is not going to be a people anymore. And hence you have the origin of the Samaritans. We're told in verse 9, the head of Ephraim is Samaria and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. Again, same kind of idea. Peel back the curtain. Head of Ephraim, Samaria. That's the capital. The head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. That's Pekah, or Pekah, the Israelite king. It's going to be that way. It's going to stay that way. And at the end of the day, you're dealing with a human king as at the head. Whereas Jerusalem and Judah had Yahweh at the head. And that might be the contrast that's going on here. Now go to the end of verse 9. The message for Ahaz was, If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. This is the real threat. You know what Ahaz thought the threat was? He thought the threat was Syria, and he thought the threat was Israel. This is the real threat. Will you believe the word of God or won't you? You're at a crossroads right here. It all comes down to this. And you got your eyes focused on Israel. you got your eyes focused on Syria. But the crux of the matter is this. If you will not believe, you will not be established. God was going to deliver Jerusalem. God's promise was not dependent on Ahaz. God was going to deliver Jerusalem, and he did. But whether or not Ahaz would be established was dependent upon whether or not he believed the word of God. That's the crux of the matter. He's distracted. He's distracted by what's going on around him. He thinks all these other things are the big matters. The aqueduct, Syria, Israel. But the big matter is this. Will you believe? If you do not believe, you will not be established. And so it is for everyone in this room and every one of us. That the crux of the matter for us in the days in which we live, every day of our lives, is not what's going on in the world around us as much as it is, will we believe the word of God? 
And that starts with by the grace of God, believing that Jesus is the Son of God who bore the wrath of God on behalf of everyone who would look to him for the forgiveness of sins. More about that a little bit later. When I read this, I think of a particular passage. Um, I think of what the people are depicted as saying in Revelation 6.17 at the uh, cusp of the return of Christ. They say, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand? To which the response I would give would come from Romans chapter 5 verses 1 in the beginning of 2 which reads, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Who's standing in the day of wrath? It's those who by the grace of God have believed Jesus to be Savior. Now I want you to note, quick note here, linguistically, this wasn't just for Ahaz. The second person pronoun here is plural. So the implication is, this is a message for all of you. Ahaz, Davidic dynasty and company, this is for all of you. If you believe, you'll be established. And if you don't, you won't. Well, the Lord knew Ahaz's unbelief. And now we get into the near, um, the near moment where we're going to see that Christmas promise come. But this is the backdrop. Watch what happens here. God graciously condescends, offers Ahaz something that no other person in all of human history has been offered. Verse 10 and 11 read, Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Behold your God. This is amazing. As you go through these verses, you see more of who God is. Look how patient, look how merciful he is. He not only sends Isaiah with a message of deliverance, but here his patience and mercy is demonstrated even further. Through the prophet Isaiah, he tells Ahaz, ask for yourself a sign from the Lord your God. You could ask it in the depths like down to the bottom of the ocean, maybe even down to the depths of Sheol, as it were. You could ask it in the heights of the heavens. It can't be too large. Ask for the biggest thing that you could ask, and I'll grant it to you, so as to function as a way to affirm my word, which doesn't need to be affirmed by anything, as it were. My word is good, my word is true, but I'm going to graciously condescend, and I'm going to offer you a proverbial blank check to ask for any sign that would function as a stamp of assurance concerning the previous promise. Now granted, God's word is enough. God didn't need to give a sign. There were times in history, right, where God condescended to help the uh, faint-hearted faith of a man like Gideon, granting a wet fleece and a dry fleece in the book of Judges. Not too long after this, in the book of Isaiah, God gave signs through Isaiah to Hezekiah to confirm or as pledges of divine prophecies. Isaiah 37, verse 30. Isaiah 38, verse 37. But we would do well to remember what Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 4. That it is a wicked and perverse generation that seeks a sign. And right before that, the Pharisees were asking for a sign from heaven. So one takeaway you don't want to have, you don't want to say, okay, God told Ahaz, you could ask for anything, ask for a sign. So my takeaway today is I'm going to leave here and I'm going to ask God for a sign. Wrong takeaway. God is not saying that to you through Ahaz, through what he said to Ahaz. But he did say that to Ahaz. 
a man who likely assumed Isaiah's prophecies as being pie in the sky, mere fairy tales for impractical persons. How would Ahaz respond? Watch this, verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Make no mistake, this is not piety. This is pseudo-piety. This is not humility. This is false humility. Notice Ahaz even appears to be quoting, at least referencing, the law, like Jesus did during his temptation in the wilderness. I'm not going to tempt the Lord. But that's not what it would have been. If Ahaz would have responded to an offer from God, that's not tempting God. And think of what he's saying in that. Think of what Ahaz is implying. He's implying that Isaiah and Yahweh through Isaiah was soliciting him to sin. As though he's more righteous than God. I will not tempt the Lord. You know what was really going on here? Ahaz made up his mind. He might have already acted on it, and he might have been about to act on it. I don't know the exact uh, chronology here, but he knew what he was going to do or what he already was committed to. He knew that he was going to stick with relying on the king of Assyria. I got a problem. Syria and Israel are coming against me. I could look to Yahweh. I don't believe in that pie-in-the-sky fairy tale stuff. I want something practical. I want something I can get my hands around. I'm going to trust the king of Assyria. He's mighty. He will help me. But he couldn't just come out and say that. At least he didn't think he could. I like how Matthew Henry put it when he wrote, Secret disaffection to God is often disguised with the color of respect to him. And those who are resolved that they will not trust God, yet pretend that they will not tempt Him. Instead of saying to Yahweh, I am your servant and your son, save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel, Ahaz sent messengers to the king of Assyria to say that very thing. 2 Kings 16 verse 7. Furthermore, you'd find out he took silver and gold from the temple of the Lord, as well as treasures from the king's palace, and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. And I want to remind you of something here. I want to remind you, it worked out. Assyria, not too long from now, would deal with Syria. And there would be a short-term relief that Judah would experience as a result. It worked out. But as I told you before, and you can look on in this very chapter, beginning at verse 17, you would see that the king of Assyria, the ill-chosen savior, would become Judah's ravager. And I just want to remind you, please don't make a mistake like this. Thinking that if you're doing the wrong thing, yet God is blessing you in the midst of doing the wrong thing, that it's God's stamp of approval on the wrong thing. It's not that. Some people can think that. Some people can think, you know, I am not seeking first the kingdom of God. I'm seeking it 22nd, but it really does seem to be working out for me. I mean, life is going really well. I know family life is going well. Business life is going well. So God can't be all too upset with what I'm doing, what I'm privately practicing, what I'm misprioritizing. He's probably fine with all that. Don't make that mistake. Don't use subjective experience to be your means of evaluation. Use the living and active word of God as that. Well, that leads just about to the promise of Christmas, and I hope you're going to appreciate it all the more. Then he said, Hear now, O house of David, 
Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? And I could tell you more about that. They had wearied God, if you will, that anthropomorphic language. You look at Isaiah chapter 1, verse 14. God told the people, your new moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. God is talking not just to Ahaz here, but he's talking to the entire house of David. And it's as though Isaiah is saying, look, you've wearied men. Like somebody like Isaiah. Like this is hard to deal with. This is crazy rejection of God's truth. But will you also weary, as it were, God? Ahaz rejected the offer of a sign, so Yahweh himself declared that he would give a sign to the house of David. Look at verse 14. Therefore. What's the therefore, therefore? In light of Ahaz's rejection, this amazing promise of Christmas comes in the context of Ahaz's rejection of the nation's rejection of Yahweh in light of Ahaz's unbelief and the nation's unbelief. Therefore, since you don't want a sign, since you reject the sign, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And who's he speaking to here? You go back to verse verse 13, the house of David. He's expanded it beyond just simply Ahaz to the house of David he's speaking. And he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Therefore, it's a kind of act of judgment, if you will, on Ahaz and his generation. You don't want the sign? The sign's going past you now. It's still going to be a sign to the house of David. It's just going past you. You won't have a part in it. You will hear of it, but you won't see it. Therefore, you reject the sign. I will give you a sign. Now, this is the amazing thing, right? God told Ahaz, you can ask for anything in the depths or in the heights. Implication? You could ask for something so great, something so magnificent, but he didn't ask. So Yahweh chose something so great and so magnificent that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Something that has never happened in human history. Something that will not happen. We have miraculous births in the scriptures. We have miraculous births of, say, Sarah. In her old age, conceiving a son. We have a miraculous birth of, say, Elizabeth, conceiving in her old age. But this is the only example of a virgin conceiving and bearing a son. This is a once in all of human existence sign. And if you were to ask, how could this be? Well, you'd be placing yourself, as it were, in Mary's sandals. Because when Gabriel came to her and Gabriel told her about this, she said, how can this be? And remember what Gabriel told her. Gabriel told her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So that the Holy One who was to be born would be called the Son of God. Luke chapter 1 verses 34 and 35. He goes on to say in verse 37, For with God nothing will be impossible. Think of this, the eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, would take on humanity without laying aside his deity. He'd become what he wasn't without ever ceasing to be what he was. The one through whom all things were created would be conceived in the womb of Mary. 
The one who knit David together in the womb and the one who told Jeremiah that when he was in the womb, he knew him, he would be one who would be conceived in the womb and would be surrounded by amniotic fluid himself. In Jesus, the eternal word became flesh and dwelt among men. He very literally was Emmanuel, God with us. That speaks to his deity, that he's Emmanuel, God with us. It's not just a sign with him, it actually is realized perfectly and completely in him. And it also speaks to the accessibility that human beings can have by the grace of God. God with us. Divinity and amazing accessibility. And you might say, and I've already told you, but I'll just say it again as we get ready to close. You might say, well, how would this apply to you know, Ahaz in the house of David? And I think in one sense it was judgment. This was the promise of a sign that they wouldn't see. But I also think there was a sense of assurance that was being given to the house of David as a whole. That despite the ravages that would come, the dynasty of David would stand. One day, amidst the dark days of subjugation, you see that if you read on in verses 16, uh, 15 and 16, amidst the dark days of subjugation, this sign would be fulfilled and a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Now it's interesting, I think, that Ahaz, son of David that he was, wouldn't see the sign of Emmanuel. But one of his descendants, another son of David, would. Joseph, the husband of Mary. You look in Matthew chapter 1, who's in the genealogy right there? It's not only Joseph, it ends with Joseph, the husband of Mary. But you look back, Ahaz is in it. Joseph himself had a conundrum. One of his own, it was different than Ahaz's. He was thinking about quietly divorcing the woman to whom he was betrothed. He wasn't like Ahaz. We're told in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph was a just man. He was a righteous man. And as an outworking of his righteousness, he was merciful and he was kind. And even though he thought Mary had been unfaithful, he didn't want to make her a public example. He didn't want to disgrace her. He didn't want her to be stoned for her adultery in the betrothal. At least what he thought was probably that. But the word of God came to him via an angel in the dream, even as the word of God came to Ahaz via Isaiah at the aqueduct. And remember what the angel told him? Joseph, do not be afraid. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife. For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. Now, I'll tell you what I think. I think what happens here is not that Matthew includes an editorial note. It kind of reads like that in some of your translations. But I think what happens is that the angel's message is continued. I say that because the perfect tense that's used here, caught very well in the Berean literal Bible, reads like this, as though the message from the angel is continuing to Joseph. And all this has come to pass so that it may be fulfilled that having been spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So, I say to you what Isaiah told Ahaz. 
if you believe, you will be established. Do you believe that Yahweh, the Father, has put His signature on the coming of His Son via the virgin birth? Do you believe that there was this young woman of marriable age that conceived in her womb the Lord Jesus via the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you believe that Emmanuel was both truly God and truly man? Do you believe that the sinless Son of God took on human flesh and lived a perfect life, never sinning? Do you believe that the baby born in Bethlehem would later on in his life be placed upon the cross, dying for the sins of all who would believe in him for the forgiveness of sins? Do you believe that Emmanuel rose from the grave three days later? If you believe, you will be established, not only now, but forever. You need not and you ought not to look for further signs. Believe the ones that you have been given. The sign has happened. The virgin has conceived. She has born a son. The signs of all Jesus' miracles, to use language from John chapter 12. The signs accomplished at his death upon the cross. The sign that Jesus spoke of, the sign of the prophet Jonah. I.e. Jesus having left the tomb after three days, even as Jonah left the belly of the great fish after three days. So I say, if you haven't, repent and believe the guilt of your sins will be forgiven. You will be saved from the wrath to come. And Emmanuel, God with us, will be with you forever. Forever. You think how crazy it is for Ahaz to reject the offer that God had given him. A kind of blank check. You know what's crazier than that? Rejecting the offer of salvation through God's Son who bore God's wrath on the cross. That's even crazier. Ahaz, you might even say, didn't come out outright and reject it, though he did, but he gave a polite head nod to it. I will not tempt the Lord. I will not ask or tempt the Lord. And you don't want to do that when it comes to the cross or the gospel. You want to fully embrace it. And you want to live not only during the incarnation season, you want to live throughout the entirety of your life in Christ, knowing and treasuring the reality that God is with you through the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you will be with God forever through the Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. What a sign that has come. What a son that has been given. Thanks be to God for the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Emmanuel has come. We thank you that in a very real way, Emmanuel is with us even now. We know that he said that you would and he would via the presence of the Holy Spirit take up residence in our hearts. We know that he is the one who is present in the midst of the assembly of your people. And we thank you for the reality that we get to live with, having our eyes open to the fact that Emmanuel has come. Not only to be conceived in the womb of a virgin and to be born in Bethlehem, but to make his way, having lived a sinless life, all the way to the cross. So as to bear the wrath that we deserve, we thank you for our sinless Redeemer, the one who is wonderful, the one who is counselor, the one who is mighty God, the one who is everlasting Father or Father of the ages. We thank you for our Prince of Peace. So, Father, in this day, we pray that you would help us to learn from the example of Ahaz and to look more like Joseph. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to practice not Ahaz-like independence, but Christ-like dependence upon you, our Heavenly Father. And we pray, Father, that despite what is going on in the world around us, we might be drawn by your grace to look to you as the object of our hope.
that we might treasure and appreciate the words that you've given us, the signs that have come, and that we might believe your word and by your grace be established. Thank you, Lord. I know such is the gracious inheritance of your people, and may you please even add, as you see fit, to such a number in this assembly of believers who trust in Christ as Savior. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this, as it were, Christmas story. And thank you for this amazing reality that Christ has come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.